This episode has been brought to you in part by the Toronto Heschel School. You are invited to attend their open house on November 10th to discover what makes Heschel special. Visit torontoheschel.org for more details. That's Toronto, H-E-S-C-H-E-L dot org. This is Bonjour Chai, the week the Jews buy Halloween candy on sale edition. I'm Avi Feinwald in Montreal, and I'm here with Alana Zakon in Toronto and David Sklar in Calgary. We are your frozen chosen. On today's show, we discuss the ethics of selling Nazi memorabilia. But first, we kick off our month of books with author Joanne Levy. Did you dress up like a Nazi for Halloween? If so, let's talk. Guys, are you excited as I am for this book club? I'm excited to talk to Joanne Levy. I really like reading that book. Absolutely. But also all the other books. I haven't read them yet, so I don't know if I'm excited about them. There you go. What kind of stuff do you guys normally read anyways? I've been reading I've been reading a lot of um, sort of like 10,000 year histories of certain places. Um, there's this great author who writes about London, about Ireland, about Russia, and he just came out with a new book about China, Edward Rutherford. So I've been really kicking off and that's it's I've been really enjoying a lot of his books. Um, I read a lot of nonfiction. I've been on this trend for most of the pandemic and a little bit before, but I got back into it of reading memoirs and autobiographies of mostly female comedian actor writers. It's very niche. Uh, I'd say. <laughs> I, not always female, not always comedians, but always usually actors or directors, writers type people in my industry. Um, I find them extremely engaging and also really educational. And I love learning about people and how they got to where they are and the different things that they had to face. It's very hard for me to sit down and read fiction anymore, which is very bizarre because when I was a kid, I read so much fiction. So it was actually really nice this week to have a task of reading a fiction novel and to be honest, um, when I do read fiction, sometimes it is YA fiction because I find it easier to read. That like when I uh, moved away from the children's section at the library uh, and moved into the teen section and then moved out of that into the adult section, that's when I started reading nonfiction because I have a really hard time finding fiction adult novels that I enjoy. So I had that problem. I mean, I uh, for, for, for things related to the printed word, I am an absolute omnivore and I will devour anything. Um, but I was finding that I was reading a lot more nonfiction, which is fine. I love nonfiction. There's a lot of great, compelling nonfiction. Me too. Uh, and I spoke to an author friend of mine, shout out, Ariella Friedman. Um, and she's a professor of English. And I was like, listen, I think that one of the problems that I have with these, uh, with reading fiction is that you either find things that are plot driven and are thrillery or romantic or whatever it is, or you find things that are serious. And I couldn't find things that were both. And I was like, what? And I was like, aside from Donna Tartt, which everybody was like, oh, Donna Tartt, um, what are the plot driven um, literary novels? And she just gave me a list of, you know, authors to get started with. And nice. so that really kickstarted my uh, thinking about uh, reading fiction again. So I've, I've been doing that, yeah. but I read so much I think anyways of all sorts of stuff. I don't know if it was the same for you, David, but I know when I was in theater school many a year ago, um, I read so many plays and I, that's kind of when the transition started was I used to read tons of fiction and then I only read plays for like three, four years and then it was really hard to go back. Did you go through that? Well, it's true. It's like we had to read a play a week. So I got used to kind of that format of reading what people were saying and, you know, really yeah. going through. No the, description. No description. Just dialogue. Exactly. And it was kind of easy because you could get through a play in, in a, less than 24 hours itself. So when you're picking up a 600 page book, you're like, oh, this is a behemoth. But I find it's kind of nice to fluctuate. So I, I try to fluctuate between like mm. a play every now and then that sort of piques my interest, something nonfiction, then something fiction to really balance it all out. Something very real world and gaining some knowledge and then totally some escapism that I, I kind of need when I 
want to unwind and relax. So, I mean, hopefully we have something for everybody over the next uh, few weeks. So today we're kicking it off with a tween novel called Sorry for Your Loss, and the author of the novel will be on in just a few moments to discuss it with us. Uh, but we'd like to announce all the books so you can read them and keep up with the discussion. Um, and as a bonus, um, we will be giving away a copy of each book every week to those who write in and join our new social um, channel chat um, that we have. Send us an email this week to find out more about that and to join it and to uh, and be entered in to win a copy of Sorry for Your Loss. Uh, send us an email at bonjour at the cjn.ca, bonjour at the cjn.ca to be entered into that and to find out about our social channel chat. Next week's book, um, we'll be talking about Gideon's Bible, A Father and a Son Discuss God, the Bible, and Life by Rick Salutin. And I'm really looking forward to this one since I nachas this a long time ago. Uh, after that, on November 18th, will be the novel Nothing the Same, Everything Haunted, The Ballad of Muttle the Cowboy by Gary Barwin. And finally, on November 25th, will be the second book in Michael Posner's trilogy on Leonard Cohen entitled Leonard Cohen Untold Stories from This Broken Hill, Volume 2. I realized that, like, all our books have a lot of colons and subtitles um, that we've picked. I think that's the <laughs> common theme people. through them all. Um, but anyways, those are our books. Those are the ones we're going to be following up every um, over the next few weeks. Um, I don't know if you know this, but traditionally November was Jewish Book Month because it offered an opportunity to showcase books in time for Hanukkah gift giving. But A, it is always a good time to give a book or to buy a book for yourself. And B, the whole gift giving thing at Hanukkah yeah. is so goyish anyways. I was just talking about this yesterday. Okay? There someone. is nothing Jewish about buying gifts on Hanukkah. We can get to that when we get to Hanukkah, I'm sure. Let's put a pin in that for now. Um, but nevertheless, we are taking the time now to showcase some new reading and hopefully inspire conversations. David, 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 what do you know about watches? You just told us off the air that your watch is broken. And I was like, okay, we got to get this guy a watch. I desperately need a new watch. This is my old Casio. It doesn't work. Nothing about it's falling apart. I think I need it for a new for a Hanukkah gift, a new watch. Avi, can you help me out? Well, I mean, there are watches for every budget. You can buy a $20 watch, you can buy a uh, $200,000 watch, um, and you can buy watches for literally everything in between. Eric Goldberg at Atelier Lou has watches for just about every budget. I think it's always a good idea to start buying a watch in a, you know, reasonable, you know, budget and spend a few hundred dollars because it'll be something that will be long lasting, that will be made with quality. Um, and a great entry point is Seiko watches, which he carries. Um, the Seiko fives are automatic watches. Do you even know what an automatic watch is, David Sklar? I'm sorry to like mansplain this to you. A man watch. mansplaining to another man? Mind blowing. <laughs> I have not a um, clue. An automatic watch is one that doesn't have a battery in it and it is powered by the movement of your hand. Um, there's a little rotor inside and it just uh, winds a spring as your hand moves up and down. So it never needs a watch, it never needs winding and it never needs a battery. And as long as you keep it in good shape and you get it serviced every few years, um, it will keep time forever and ever and ever. Um, and it's fully mechanical and it's a work of wonder to see from the inside. And you can get one started at just a few hundred bucks um, for a Seiko 5. And they're gorgeous looking. They are classic looking watches. They will never go out of style. And you can easily start with that. And that to me is going to be lesson number one in buying a watch is buy a mechanical watch, buy one that will have a little bit of quality in it. Um, and that looks great. And there's no way best to start than with the Seiko 5. I think that's my issue. I keep buying these real cheap watches all the time and they always break six months into it. I think I finally do need to invest in a in a more 
uh, middle-aged watch at this point in my life. Alana, where would David um, invest in such a watch and uh, maybe even get a, a, a good deal out of it? Well, as you said, at Atelier Lou, they have many watches, and I wouldn't even say that they're middle-aged. They're very modern-looking, a lot of these watches. Um, and if you are listening right now and want to check out the supply, you can go on to atelierlou.com, that's A-T-E-L-I-E-R-L-O-U.com, and use the code BON18 at checkout for 10% off your order. Family, if anyone's listening, uh, I think you, I know what you need to get me for Hanukkah. For the non-holiday gift-giving time the Jews have, right? I do not buy into that. I believe in many gifts for the holidays. This week saw another kerfuffle over the sale of Nazi memorabilia in an Edmonton antique store. This comes after another store in Ontario was in the news earlier this year for the same issue, and an auction took place in Montreal this summer of Nazi artifacts. And, of course, very much related to this not in Canada, this week an Israeli court stopped the sale at auction of tattoo implements that were used on inmates at Auschwitz. So I guess the question is, you know, what is the deal with selling stuff? Clearly, there is a lot of this stuff on the market. There is clearly people that want to be buying it. Um, should we be selling it? Should it be illegal to sell or display this stuff in public or even in private, as is in some so many European countries? Should we be allowing the sale but just say, agreeing that it's distasteful? What's the deal with the buying and selling of Nazi memorabilia? I think these are a lot of very valid, good questions to really ask. And I really want to know what the intent is behind it. Um, you know, I was talking about this with my partner, John, and he mentioned that his grandfather fought for the Allies in World War II, and he was really interested in Nazi memorabilia. You know, he fought against them, but he was fascinated by it and wanted to understand it more. He was really interested. He never collected anything, but he said, no, I, I want to learn more about this and sort of see the relevance behind it. So I I'm really curious about what these people's intent was behind purchasing this memorabilia. Well, I mean, something that I read about in the, the number machine auction story was that apparently the person who was running the auction was trying to raise awareness about the Holocaust through auctioning off the machine that put numbers on the arm. That really makes me feel really icky because that's not to me the way to bring awareness to the Holocaust by bringing up trauma objects. Like a lot of survivors raised their voices around this and ultimately it did get called off. Um, I think it was yesterday. Um, I, I think there are are better ways to do that and maybe that involves just keeping it at the museum like i i think that there is a lot of value in having these artifacts in a museum in a space where it's very obvious what the intent of having it is i think glorifying the machine by trying to like make a whole kerfuffle and people are sending throwing money at it just feels like ethically icky to me i want to be clear that the person who was selling the machine itself was an orthodox jew from israel itself too so what? To you, that's that doesn't no make it better. No, because sometimes I think no. we, I think we always think the relevance is, oh, these must be neo Nazis who are buying and trading in these goods, right? right? This was an Orthodox Jew who wanted to what make a profit off this. Yeah, that that feels very immoral and icky it's too. Gross. But I just want I, I want to preface this by this yeah. was a Jew who was selling this machine. So do we really? Can, I can, I'm trying to think of if there's any other item that we question the intent of the buyer and the intention of the seller um, in order to regulate the purchase and sale of any goods. Do we go and say like, you are not going to, you are going to be using this food for non-food purposes and therefore it's a waste of food and you cannot buy more food. That's not the same. I, I, I know, I, clearly, but I'm saying that like- And I'm not saying it should, it should be illegal. I don't think it should be illegal. I just don't think it's right. Okay. 
Like Perfect. it's one thing to have it in a museum, another thing to have it like, you know, what about displayed in, in that way. And we do restrict the sale of, of different items too. If they're poachers or anything like that, there are restrictions put in place for many different things around mm -hmm. the world that we sort of say, this cannot be bought and sold on so the worldwide market. I mean, I'd what be very- restrictions, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'd be very happy if in a shop, they didn't sell Nazi artifacts. Like I met this woman a few years ago who was living in Russia and she was Jewish actually by total coincidence. Um, we met while we were working on a set together and she came to Canada and she was telling me how back in her home country, it was very common to walk into like a little gift shop and they would have like little Nazi artifacts. That's extremely uncomfortable in this day and age after everything that happened in Eastern Europe, let alone anywhere else in the world. Like that to me, I don't know. I, I, it's hard to say whether it should be like a law that it shouldn't happen because like, I don't know, freedom of people... I, I don't know. I don't have a concrete response to that, but it's definitely something that makes me very uncomfortable. Yeah, and you're welcome to not go into that store then. So should white supremacists be able to like just put <laughs> racist items on I, display? Like, yeah, but I think it's a, so, it, so it begs like a bigger a bigger question. You know? Yeah. So I mean, I don't. Th to me, the 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 big piece that really you know um, where I went in with it in my mind was, you know, let's say this guy has these plates and they were used in a Nazi mess hall and on the bottom of it you have a little swastika or something like that or you have a, a, an iron cross that's for sale that doesn't necessarily, you know, that has a small swastika on it but it was, uh, you know, it's yet another thing. But there's there's so much of this stuff. This doesn't belong necessarily in a museum because it's not museum worthy, right? Now, if somebody goes and buys that, do you think that they are going to be all of a sudden radicalized to white supremacy? Do you think that they are going to all of a sudden, you know, become more white supremacists by the well, fact I would that they own these plates. I question why they want those plates to begin Maybe with. Maybe somebody neutral wants. I think that there is a lot of people who collect military history and have, you know, collections of military memorabilia. And to collect only one side's military history and not the others, even if you're a neutral party, I have no problem with somebody who decides that they want to go and collect so, this. So, like, I have, I have at home uh, a Nazi coin. Right. I have no I'm not supporting Nazism or white supremacy at all. But I was fascinated by it when I was living in the UK uh, of a Nazi coin. How does that? Well, you just make freaked out Alana. She's like, yeah. wait a second here. Well, I because know I you, so I'm not worried. Yeah, but, but it's just but like, the same I don't know. I would never want an item like that in my house. For yeah, me, it sort of says we we beat you. Right. It kind of says it, there's no more just desserts than a Jew owning some Nazi memorabilia itself. I think that like. No. No, I don't know. I, I don't. Well, I really don't see an issue here at all. I think that I don't want to buy it. I don't know if anybody should be forced to buy it, but to you know, or forced to see it. You don't have to go into certain stores, but you know, there's a lot of stuff that is distasteful that is important to sell. Um, mein Kampf, right, is for sale on Amazon, right? Who's profiting off of that? Who's making money off of that? Should we be giving it away only because then nobody should make money off of Mein Kampf? It's a poor, it's a really bad book. Don't get me wrong. But you can buy it. You can buy the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. But that doesn't make it like, you know, a problem. Right. You just don't buy the book. And we don't, you know, we, we don't go and say, well, we we can't profit off of it. So you only give it away. You, because uh, then you're basically saying, yes, let's give it away to everybody. And then we're going to disseminate more hate information. I think things should be available. There are often legitimate reasons why people buy things and often illegitimate reasons and it's not necessarily the role of the seller um, to investigate that if I knew for a fact for example 
right? That X person is selling this to Y person mm -hmm. because they are a neo-Nazi, right? That might be, I don't know how, whether it's more distasteful or more illegal or, or some issue. If I was a seller, I would say, okay, maybe I wouldn't sell this to you yeah, right now. Yeah, but you don't always but, know. How are you going to know? Like, exactly. So I think that head. the intent, so I, I think I'm just trying to push, push, push back on this intent thing, right? Where we go and say, listen, what, why do we care about intent if we can't ever really judge it? So what do you make of that? This what do you make of the story uh, about the the guy from Thunder Bay Hospital who was sharing uh, all these Nazi artifacts on his social media, and and I, I believe he was kicked out of his position. So you think that's that was the wrong? Why position? was he sharing them? Was he just putting images up from his collection? Did he have an equal am amount of American and Canadian war memorabilia? Equal, and I this don't was know. Just part of it, I don't know. But he did the the whole claim that he made was that he was a history buff, and he wrote that he made a poor judgment call about what to post on Facebook. And he dis but he described it as lighthearted, and he said some of it was lighthearted and probably inappropriate, but there was no malicious intent there. That's a quote. I, I think we light hearted. Also, yeah, not lighthearted for sure. And I, I think don't know we, about we have, the lighthearted. I think we have to be realistic with the society and the day and age that we're living in, in a sense that these things can be are very sensitive. They can be very hurtful. We also have to talk about the fact that when a person is buying and selling Nazi memorabilia. We're at the same time with people walking around sort of saying vaccines are Nazi mandates, right? People walking around with stars of David at the same time too saying, this is like the Nazis. They're treating us like the Nazis and we're, yes. we're the poor Jews. Of you the, mean yellow stars, yellow, not just regular stars no, of David. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, yellow, yeah the yellow stars for sure. And I'm I think glad you're bringing to, this up. I think we yeah. have to face this fact too, that as people are buying and selling and sure, you know, I... Do they have a right? Possibly. But I think sometimes things can be a little bit beyond the pale. And we're dealing with a lot of problems nowadays. Things are getting out of control. We bring it up again and again on this podcast that, you know, anti-Semitism or desensitization to the Holocaust is on the rise itself. That some things I think like, like the machine, the tattoo machine, should be placed in a museum rather than for in private individuals at home. Mm -hmm. Well, you bring up a bigger point that I was actually going to mention about people just haphazardly using the term Nazi to refer to like anyone bad in like a film or in their life or, you know, Trump is a Nazi and this person's a Nazi. And I feel like that's been a discourse that's been happening a lot in like Jewish, I don't know, about Jewish people feeling uncomfortable just like willy-nilly using that as a comparison. Yeah, but to, to bring it back to what we're, to the original like discussion here, do we really think that memorabilia makes people more, you know, white supremacist or more prone to like talking about people as, as Hitler's or Nazis or, or whatnot. Do you, I, I don't necessarily see the sale of X, right? Leading directly, making a correlation to the rise in Y. No, mm -hmm. if you're already a white supremacist, nothing will encourage you to be more or less based on memorabilia itself. But we exactly, also, but at the same time, you don't want to give more strength or power that if they want to take these things on and then walk around and then go to a Halloween party with their swastika plates. dagger with show, like, showing plates and sort of saying, oh, I invited the family over for Friday night dinner. Here are my Nazi plates. Uh, I think we want to discourage this. Yeah. And I really think we want to put these things in a museum that are not being made, uh, that they're not having money, made money off of. I think we want to encourage and educate people, whether it's at different museums around the world, in Germany or in Canada or in Israel somewhere, and sort of say, these are things we need to learn about and appreciate and value for the horrors that, that were committed in these people's names. So I have no problem with discouraging and pointing out to people, hey, you know what, that store there, they sell Nazi memorabilia. It's kind of weird. Don't go in there, whatnot, right? Or saying that, like, I don't think it's a good idea that you own these plates. Um, but 
for people that care, I don't, I think making any sort of law or any sort of pressure or any sort of, I mean, the pressure is like, it's, it's harder because it's like, you know, communal pressure is communal pressure. There's, there's things that go on in the air, but I, at the end of the day, I really, I, I think I'm on the side of Canada where there are no laws against this right now. Um, and it's not quite a free for all, but I think that, you know, there are stores that should figure this out on their own and say, Hey, maybe I don't want to sell this. And there's plenty of stores. I was talking to uh, a friend of mine the other day and he, we, we know an auctioneer in Montreal and he's Jewish and I don't think he would ever sell. I think he probably, if he got an estate filled with, you know, a bunch of stuff and it happened to have even stuff that is very valuable. Um, and I honestly believe the only reason why the, and this is not a money thing and we're not stereotyping here, but I honestly think that the reason why the Orthodox Jew was selling that tattoo machine is because it is of significant financial value and it probably not should go said. to a museum. But oftentimes, on, he was saying what? What was I, he saying? I have a quote on the auction page. It okay. said, remember what Amalek did to you. Do not forget. Yeah, so he's that's trying a, to that's, raise to me, awareness. That's a thing. But that's in, like the weirdest yeah, way. Yeah, so that's fine. We Ugh. really believe in this. We really believe as Jews that it's not about, right, um, erasing the idea no, of anything that erasing. happened before. So I think he's selling it, but auction? I think he's selling it to, to make money because museums should be able to, you know, if you're going to have this, maybe you should be able to pay for it and this person should be able to profit off of something. We don't give away art pieces yeah, to museums be because museums else? should have Is fancy art. Is this really the way to raise awareness? That's really my big question. There, there's so many So what things. should we do with this machine? Put it in the museum what should we do and with auction off something else to raise How, money about and, something. So... Who, why should he, why should he not sell it to the museum and make money? I don't think he, he has it, right? That's what I just said about the like if I have a rare Van Gogh, right, that I just discovered in my basement and everybody's authenticated it and it says, "Wow, this is amazing." Should I give it away to the museum because it belongs in a museum, or should I go be able to go and say, "No, I'm going to make 150 million dollars off of this"? Or I don't more think we should be because it belongs should to be, me. I don't think we should be comparing a Van Gogh to a tattoo machine from the Holocaust itself. Thank you, I David. really don't think no, those two are comparable at all. I'm not. I'm just comparing the fact that if somebody has something of value and a museum wants it, why shouldn't somebody be able to go and say, if they want, right, to go and say, well, maybe you should pay $20,000 for this or whatever well, I, First of all, I think the guy option. was just trying to make, I think he was trying to make a quick buck, to be completely honest. I don't think he had great morals or values to try well, to say it Alana, should be Alana's disagreeing with you on that one. No, I'm not. The quote that she found. We're saying the same I said, thing. No, I said that I think that he was trying to make some money because he had an item and you said, no, it's to raise awareness. And I think he could be both. No, I'm not saying that's what I think. I'm saying that's what he said. He okay. was quoted as saying that he was trying to raise awareness. I don't think I, that's necessarily true or not. I don't know. I don't know the guy. I'm not going to impute any motives from of this individual without meeting him or talking to him. There you um, go. But I think that if somebody has an item and somebody else wants it, you shouldn't have to just give it away because we shouldn't profit off of, you know, mem Nazi memorabilia. Can I just take this conversation a step further and really ask this question, which I'm curious Please. about? It. We, we talk about how, you know, many people I'm sure are going to be very upset about this, the tattoo machine, you know, they're trying to buy and sell it. But I'm curious because right now there is a generation of grandchildren of Holocaust survivors who are intentionally getting their grandparents' tattoos on their arm itself. What do we feel about this type of issue where they are trying to um, duplicate it and follow and they sort of say we're honoring our grandparents' memory while they were in the Holocaust? Is this the type of legacy that the grandchildren should be continuing forward? Or is it sort of just regurgitating a lot of the trauma? I think that it's conflating two separate issues because people are already 
complicated, you know, feelings. People have complicated feelings about tattoos and Judaism to begin That's with. True. And then like to subvert the idea of tattoos and Judaism. What if it was instead of tattooing the numbers? Um, what if somebody, if it became a trend um, for Jews, not for non-Jews, but for Jews who were really pushing back against this, like, you know, vaccines are yellow, you know, are, you know, is a Nazi thing and whatnot. And people wearing yellow stars. Could you imagine what would happen if Jews decided to start wearing yellow stars for a couple uh, of weeks? Uh, all of um, this the same way that people had poppies no yeah. so i'm ha- hold on like w- would we feel okay about that for jews to proudly identify as jews instead of wearing kippas by putting on yellow stars and saying that was a symbol that was used as a symbol of hate right. we're taking that back and this is our symbol um and only jews can wear this and if you don't that's like a non-jew wearing a yellow star in solidarity is like a white person saying the n-word when they are singing you know a rap song in a karaoke bar right and that should not be done right would we feel okay with that I don't know. Even the numbers on oh, the boy. arm thing, like I, I remember where it, when that article came out. I, I too, I think it is like a double thing for me because I have a weird relationship with tattoos in general because of my upbringing and what it means in Judaism with tattoos. So like that's like one part of it, but I don't know. I, I think it is more the second thing. Uh, that, that's my feeling in this moment of what you said, David, about it kind of regurgitating trauma. I don't know if that's the best way to raise awareness. And I don't, I've also read that a lot of survivors feel very uncomfortable about young people putting numbers because that was like the horror that they went through. They don't want it to be repeated is what I've, you know, read a lot of. But some grandparents have sort of felt honored and and validated by their grandchildren doing this as well, too. And it it does irk me in some ways to sort of say, is this what you've taken from the Holocaust? The fact that you want to honor your grandparents by having another tattoo sort of to share that trauma and that memory moving forward? Are we just perpetuating trauma as we go forward from generation to to generation? It's it's a very valid question. That is what the Jewish community is very, very good at, (laughs) is using this fear and trauma to like the to have as the main source of like identity. Right. When it comes to, you know, current, you know, ways in which the oftentimes the community works, it's often about remember the Holocaust. Right. You know, don't forget that there's anti-Semitism in the world. And this is yet another I think it's a symptom of that sort of larger, you know, image. I have so much more to say on that, but I feel like we'll go on for like an hour. Let's hear. I, I, again, I, I, I'm not sure where I would stand. I, I think that if we, if it became really a thing, right, and everybody was doing it, like I said, I, I have a harder time with the tattoo thing because it does conflate bigger mm-hmm. issues within Judaism. Yeah. But if everybody decided, you know what, um, we are the same way that everybody wears poppies for two weeks in the year. We're going to have uh, yellow stars for Yom Hashoah, and everybody's like leading up to that is just going to have that. Um, and you know, I think that there's. I wouldn't necessarily have a problem with it. Um, I, I, I would feel uncomfortable. But is it a way to reclaim it? I don't know. I mean, a poppy was a neutral symbol. There, you know, this is clearly taking a charged symbol and turning it into something else. But I think that communities have an opportunity and have ways in which they do this. I mean, look at, um, you know, the Q word, right? You used to have, it used to be a really bad thing to call somebody mm-hmm. queer, right? Um, and, and, and now it's like not only a point of pride, but it's, it's a basic identifier for a lot of people. I was, I was quite uncomfortable calling myself queer for, for many number of years, but now it's something that I embrace and I sort of say, yeah, I'm part of the queer community itself. Um, it took me a while actually to get around that type of language too. Um, but what about the F word in sense? You know, would I feel comfortable saying fag to myself? Uh, that I, I do not know. I, I would be very uncomfortable if my own community, the queer community, yeah. started saying we should take that word back and we should be very pr- mm-hmm. proud of that yeah, word. Dan, Dan Savage had that 
Dan Savage, who's a popular American uh, sex writer and columnist, had that for decades, right? That was the the Colin, and he, his idea was to defang that word and to say, you, I can't possibly say anything bad. You can't possibly call me anything bad. And anytime somebody wrote in the letter into his, his advice column, I, I'm going to say this, uh, but I'm only saying this as a descriptive. I'm not using this in a pejorative term. Um, the Every letter was prefaced with, hey, faggot. Right. And he was like, that's who I am. You can't possibly say anything bad about it. And it took it, it went it was fine for a very long time. And it only recently started because of various identity politics and various backlashes. He has stopped. He's spoken about it and why he has stopped using words like that. Um, but that's you know, that's it. He got he got shot down in a big way. There's a huge article about um, him using the T word um, in a um, in a colloquial context um, and to to refer to people of uh, trans experience and uh, that, um, you know, he pushed back and I don't know, I'm not going to get way in on that. But I think the communities have an opportunity to deal with that. And if, you know, and again, to bring it all the way back to our original thing, if it became a thing for Jews to buy Nazi memorabilia just so that they can either destroy it or remember in their homes, right, that this happened to my great grandfather and I want to remember and I don't want to forget it and I want to own some piece of this so that I can say, you know, not to glorify it, but I can remember what that actually means, then, you know, memorabilia, Nazi artifact sales, you know, I'm glad that they wouldn't be illegal at that point. I still feel for, I still feel it, the best way to educate is to move forward, is to take these items from such a tragedy and put them in a museum for knowledge. But not everything is, not everything is museum worthy, right? There are thousands and thousands and thousands of Nazi plates and armbands, and not every museum needs a whole, you know, stack of these things. And so at some point a museum's going to say, I don't need this stuff. So what do you do when you have this stuff left? Right. I, I think I was referring to the tattoo uh, machine there itself, that that really yeah. does belong yeah. in a museum that's very that unique belongs. and special in terms of an armband or a coin or a postage stamp. Yeah. Um, so uh, I don't know. I think that that's uh, basically, you know, I think that we have a responsibility to say that this isn't the greatest use of one's, you know, business space. But if somebody wants to do it, I think that's great. Alana's kind of really icky on it. David, you're... Uh, I'm, I'm vacillating between both. I, I want to make everybody happy, I guess. Sure. I don't know. All right. You can find links to the stories that we talked about in this segment um, in the show notes. You can email us at bonjour at the cjn.ca to let us know what you thought. I'd love to hear the thoughts of our listeners on this topic. And uh, I can't wait to read what people are saying. This week, for the kickoff of our uh, book club, of our Bonjour Chai book club, uh, BCBC, I didn't realize that. Hey, guys. Um, our book this week is Sorry for Your Loss by Joanne Levy. And Joanne joins us now, actually, from her home in Clinton, Ontario. Joanne, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us a little bit about um, the book, the character, and uh, what inspired you to write it. Sure. So Sorry for Your Loss is about a girl who grows up um, in a, well, next door to a funeral home that her family owns and manages. Um, and this book was actually inspired. My dad manages a funeral home in my hometown of Hamilton, Ontario. I didn't grow up there as my dad came to it sort of later in life in his 60s. 
Um, but I imagined that if I had, my life would be sort of like Evie's, uh, the main character in the book, dealing with, um, you know, some bullies who think, who don't really understand the funeral business and also the, the mundane part of taking care of a funeral home, dusting caskets and, and doing things day to day, uh, where it just feels like the family business to her. So I wanted to sort of, uh, pull back the curtain on the funeral industry and uh, I know that kids, um, the kids age that I write for, middle graders, uh, 8 to 12, um, are curious about funerals. And, and a lot of times they don't know what goes on behind the scenes. And, and truly, a lot of adults don't know what goes on behind the scenes. Yeah, so I learned a lot. Oh, good. Genuinely, I did. I'd heard terms before, like clever Kadisha and things like that. I didn't actually know what it referred to. And there was the, clay, uh, the part in the book where you're talking about putting the clay on the bodies before they go in. I had never heard that before. So it was very educational. I thought, I thought you weaved that in really well. Like it, it didn't feel like it was an educational book per se, but like the education was weaved into it very seamlessly. And I, I, I was thinking about, you know, death is a really tough subject, whether you're older or younger. How did you navigate that as you're writing a book for middle graders? Thanks. Yeah. And it was important to me to make all those details very organic um, and interesting as they happen. And, and that was a bit of my struggle was how much to put in and how to get it in there. So, so thank you for appreciating that. I wanted to show sort of death and funerals um, in a way that wasn't completely scary. I didn't I didn't want to create nightmares for kids. I figure kids who are grieving and dealing with that kind of thing already have plenty of nightmares. Um, so I think putting putting it in that setting where uh, my main character being 12 sees that mundane everyday part of the business gave me an opportunity to show that business um, outside of funerals. Um, you know, there are funerals in the book, but to, to give it that context of it's just a building and people come here and, and there's bottles of water in the fridge and, and this and that, sort of that um, safe place to explore it outside of an actual funeral. One thing that I really appreciated in terms of when Evie, the protagonist, kept talking about, I'm sorry for your loss and really second guessing herself to trying to figure out what is the appropriate or right thing to say. It really made me think that oh my gosh, I have no idea what is ever the appropriate thing to say when a friend or a family member um, uh, is suffering a loss as well too. It made me think we're really ill-equipped sometimes to even talk about loss. So I really appreciate how I was watching Evie navigate this and second guess herself. It made me think that we all really don't know or have never been educated to talk about it. What was going on in your mind when you wanted to address that, I'm wondering? Yeah, thank you. Um, nobody, I don't think anybody ever knows the exact right words to say or if they'll land properly what we do say. And Evie being, she's such a chatterbox and that was so important for me to make her into somebody who she sort of trips on her own feet at every turn um, and she never knows what to say. And her arc in the book, and I don't think it's too many spoilers to say that she learns that sometimes being quiet and listening is the best thing you can do. And, you know, being there is what's important and, and not saying the right platitudes and what you think you're supposed to say. And, and, you know, saying something is important. It's maybe not necessarily exactly the words you say because anybody who's grieving you you don't remember what people say to you you remember that they're there so i i think that that was important to get across that she that's probably the biggest lesson that she learns is to you know keep quiet and listen and be what the other person needs because somebody else's grief is not yours 
it's it's weird. I thought about that as and I'm, I'm you know as I was going through it, and I, I don't know if you, I'm sure you might be aware of it, you might not, but one of the customs about um, Shiva is that you're not supposed to speak until the mourners themselves uh, speak and greet you and you're supposed to stay silent. And it's one of those like lessons that Judaism sort of teaches you to sort of say, you think you're going to say something and don't say anything because um, it's not your job to go and you know, say something comforting or something quiet, something, whatever, it's going to be okay, it's going to get better. Like, you, you got to shut up. And that's this lesson that she's learning. And I mean, had she stayed quiet until, you know, the the protagonist, I don't want to spoil too much of it, um, you know, would have led for a whole different book. Um, but anyways, the idea that like she's learning this lesson the way that adults sometimes learn this lesson the hard way through a shiva um, is fascinating to me. I'm, I'm also, I'm, I'm coming at it from the other from the other side, actually. I'm a rabbi. I've done lots of funerals. Um, my kids are very aware of funerals. We talk about this all the time. They've been to Paperman's, which is the funeral home in town. Um, uh, my, my wife, who's also a clergy member, uh, leads when she does bar mitzvah groups, she actually takes them to Paperman's and they do this tour in a very neutral way before they have to deal with any trauma to sort of like open them up to it. And I feel like that's where the book is coming from to sort of say, here's a neutral book that you can learn about these things before it becomes, uh, you know, an issue, not that it ever should. Um, but the, the the lessons, the way everybody's saying is, is really fascinating to see. And, um, you know, I'm curious how um, you think of this in terms of how, how much of it is a neutral book and how much of it is a book that you're supposed to be giving to kids um, as a, uh, you know, oh, your parents just passed away. Here's a book that can help you understand what's going on um, without having to like walk through the funeral home by yourself and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it, it has the ability to do both. I, I think that maybe if somebody has just lost a parent or a grandparent, it might be a bit too raw and, and maybe a little yeah. triggering. Um so Did I you think I, about that as like you're writing this and saying like this is going to end up being bought by the dozens by the funeral homes to give to kids or not like I wasn't like I that was sort of like where my thinking was going with it yeah yeah and you know my, my dad has said maybe he's biased being my dad but he said he's going to buy copies to have available for people at the funeral home um maybe that's more his I love his that proud dadness than his funeral home person but um yeah I I I think it really depends on the kid and what they're they're ready to read and and I just you know every every person comes to a book with their own needs and wants and I just hope that whoever reads it gets out of it what they need you know people ask authors what do you hope somebody takes away from this book and you know I I put lots into it but I hope that people get what they need from it and that the hours they spend reading it is they learn something or they have a different way of looking at something or just whatever they need to take from it. So I think it, it really depends. But I, I do think somebody who's just lost somebody, it might be a bit raw for them. Yeah, that's fair. Um, moving away from the actual content itself around uh, the themes, I found it really cool to just read a J- very Jewish novel for this age category because when I was that age I don't I don't remember reading anything remotely this Jewish like on every page there was some reference that just felt so real to me and uh, brought me back to experiences that I've had um and and I'd imagine it's in the same way that you're trying to you know 
not that this was your intention, but we just talked about, you know, finding the balance between like neutral and educational. How do you find the balance of writing a Jewish book that's also accessible for a wider audience? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and that's really, really important to me. Um, I don't consider this or, or any of my books religious books. It is definitely a Jewish book. It is not a religious book. Um, this one was a little easier to infuse with Jewishness because of the setting. Um, obviously, it's a Jewish funeral home, and that informs everything that um, the family does and Evie does. So that was that was a little easier. But m- most of my books have, if not overt Jewishness, Jewish characters, and that's really really important to me, um, so that we're represented and that. Jewish kids see themselves and non-Jewish kids learn about Jewish kids. Um, you know, it's that whole windows and mirrors things. I want kids to um, build empathy through books. And I think there there always needs to be more books about Jewish kids, even if they're not religious books. Um, yeah, so I, I wanted to represent myself as a kid and, and all the Jewish kids out there that don't feel they see Um, themselves enough in books. Well, I think I really appreciated how sort of matter of fact it was where they just brought up Jewish references or they were encountering Jewish characters and it wasn't the the whole amount of figuring it out and going into a deep dive into it. It was it was more this is the life I grow up in. These this is the world that surrounds me. It was just very normalized, which I appreciated. I'm curious if there was anything new or surprising about Jewish ritual or ritual in particular that you found out when when developing the book? Yeah, a a lot of the behind the scenes stuff like the the clay pots and things like that. um, I learned for the first time when I was doing a lot of this research, Um, you know, the, the Tahara rituals aren't often known unless you're going and looking for them. So Part of the research was, um, you know, knocking on on dad's door saying, can you bring me on a tour of the funeral home and, and take me into the behind the scenes stuff. And, and you know, similar to Oren was surprised to see a washer and dryer. Um, I remember thinking washer and dryer in a funeral home, but it makes sense. The, the things that, that you just don't think about. And um, in the Tahara room, how there's nail polish remover because you have to remove nail polish and there's makeup remover wipes and, and things like that. Just the nitty gritty details that I just found really fascinating and the details of um, the rituals around um, the Hever Kaddisha and how, how respectful it is and how important it is to to be so respectful of um, the deceased person and, and how there's no chit-chat and no passing instruments over the bodies and, and things like that. I mean, that's some of the details didn't make it into the book, but I just found it so fascinating and comforting. Um, those rituals and, and the rules and, and why they do what they do is is extremely comforting um, in what could be or normally is just a terrible time, finding that comfort and knowing that your loved one is cared for in such a respectful way that you don't have to worry about that one thing. Um, so yeah, I found that really lovely to learn about those things. And the fact that Jewish bodies in rituals that we don't actually, uh, what's the word, embalm? Embalm. Embalm. We don't embalm bodies. I had no idea. Yeah, unless absolutely necessary. So if if somebody passes away in Florida and has to come back to Canada, they, they have to embalm for 
that kind of thing. But normally, no, um, not in traditional funeral homes. Is this the first in a long series of novels where Evie is the protagonist and explores various unseen um, aspects of the Jewish community? Are we going to have uh, Evie visits the mikvah at some point? <laughs> that that wasn't no, on my agenda. On but Anyways, the book is called uh, Sorry for Your Loss. Uh, the author is Joanne Levy. It is a wonderful middle grade novel. Um, and uh, as a reminder, again, we are giving away a copy of this book. Email us and join our social media channels and we will select one lucky listener at random to get a copy of the book. Joanne Levy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. A pleasure. Our Word of Wisdom of the Week comes to us from Rabbi Yaakov Kersner of the Beth Israel Synagogue in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Hi, this week's portion is uh, Parshas Told Us, and of course we're introduced to Yaakov and Esav. And uh, we think of Yaakov and Esav as enemies, but actually if you read the text carefully, you'll see that Yaakov and Esav are really two sides of the same coin, and they're struggling for identity. Yaakov wants to be Esav, and Esav wants to be Yaakov. I, I guess you could say this very clearly from the verse that, where Yaakov says, Anochi Esav b'chorecha, I am Esav, your firstborn, which seems like the biggest lie uh, in history until modern times. Uh, but really, it's really saying, I want to be Esav. Yaakov wants to be the person who's not just a Yoshe Vahalem, not just the dweller of tents, but he wants to be the one who's a builder of nations. He has to be aggressive. He has to be assertive. He has to take over. And therefore, Yaakov has two names, Yaakov being he's Ba'akev Esav, he's on the heel, but he's also Ochezes Ba'akev Esav. He's also grabbing onto the heel of Esav, and his whole life is a struggle to try to to gain the dominance that he doesn't have when he starts off life. And just, it's almost the first story of Yaakov and Esau says this very beautifully, whereas Esau is the Ish Sad, Ish Yatsayid, uh, he's the Ish Hasad, he's the man who's the hunter and he brings food. When he comes home, he comes there and he's Ayef Anochi. He's tired, he's hungry. And who gives him the food? It's Yaakov. So there's an immediate transition and a transfer of, of, uh, of positions where Yaakov becomes the supplier of food and the one who ev- eventually takes over the blessings from Yitzchak and he becomes the one who's giving the matamim, the food and the, the, the delicacies to Yitzchak. And now it's time in our podcast where we discuss our nachas, something that made us feel good as Jews in Canada today. David, what's your nachas of the week? All right, before I even begin my Nachas of the Week, I feel I have to do my second mea culpa right now. So I, I was given a, a task, a homework assignment to find out about the Stetson hat. And, and here's the information. I don't want to get this wrong, so please bear with me. Smithbilt's founder, Morris Schumacher, was only 18 in 1910 when he convinced his large family to, to move from Russia to Canada. Taking the way around the language barrier, they were renamed Smith. As a young, uh, young and eager entrepreneur, Morris set out to build a successful business of his own, borrowing a loan from his local bank to purchase Calgary Hat Works. Smithbilt's hat was then born. Smithbilt hats concentrated on the local market and soon gained a reputation as the be- best hat manufacturer around. Cool. 
Awesome. So I feel, uh, I hope I don't have to follow up with a third mea culpa for next week. I think I got that correct. Hopefully. That being we're done. We're done with the hat. Thank the Lord. All right. So my nachas for this week is going to Theater Calgary. Shout out to Theater Calgary. Last night I saw Boom YX there. It was really great to be back in a a big theater uh, almost after 18 months of it being shut down. So it was really great to be surrounded by some some friends who I haven't seen in a very long time. And it's really it really have a great time seeing some live theater. It was it was a fun, engaging show. And Rick Miller as the one man show, it was fantastic to see all his talents. Alana, what's your nachos of the week? Um, my nachos of the week is that for the first time since I moved to Toronto on September first, I'm going to be holding a Shabbos meal in my own home. It was because for the last few weeks, as I was moving around and being very nomadic, I actually hosted two separate meals, not at my house. I organized it. Someone else had it in their dining room, but I was the one behind the scenes orchestrating this whole meal. So it will be really nice to actually have people in my house. I can cook. We're doing a potluck. I have a good group of people coming, and I feel like it's it's feels like I'm finally settling in. Amazing. My Nachs of the Week. I have two. First, a little bit of log rolling. Um, I am releasing a new podcast this week. I am not the host of it. I'm just the producer. Um, it is called, you guys would like this, actually. It's a podcast called Versus. Um, and it is okay. uh, a podcast with my wife and a colleague of hers, Anita Silvert, in Chicago. A colleague of mine as well. I like Anita. She's wonderful. And uh, the subtitle is Where Broadway and Torah Meet. And it basically takes a different song from a Broadway musical every episode and pairs it with a story from Tanakh, um, and each one becomes a commentary on the other. And so every week they look at a different story in a song and talk about each other and see where Broadway and Torah meet for each other. Um, so you should check that out uh, on that. wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, it's called Verses, and search for Verses Jewish Living Lab, and you will find um, all your Broadway Torah Judaism uh, needs met um, through the new Verses podcast. Is Fiddler on the Roof going to be the, uh, the, the first it's one? It's out. It episode one is out. It is Episode it's one is out. out. It features Newsies. Um, it's, I don't think we, they took a single Fiddler on the Roof um, song yet. Um, but uh, episode one features Newsies. I'm going to let you guess and figure out and think about where that might fit into Torah Judaism. Um, but leave that one up in the air for that. Um, my other nachos of the day is uh, today is actually Sigd, which is the, uh, a major uh, holiday in the Ethiopian Jewish community. Um, Ethiopian communities around the world, including right here in Canada, there's a large uh, Ethiopian community in Montreal. I believe there are other Ethiopian Jewish communities elsewhere in Canada celebrate Sigd. Um, it is the 50th day after Yom Kippur. It's a repentance holiday. It's a return to Zion holiday. Um, if you've ever been to a Sigd, you know that they eat this massive piece of bread, this, this dabo bread that is like huge, and it's spiced with uh, all sorts of really cool uh, spices in there, and they bake it, and you eat these big chunks of bread and there's other wonderful holiday traditions. Um, I encourage you to learn more about SIGD um, to have a uh, experience about that today. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week of November 4th. Our producer is Michael Freeman. Technical production is by Andre Goulet. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our new page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Remember, if you subscribe, you'll get it earlier than those who get it on the website. Please leave us a comment and a rating on the platform of your choice. And as always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca. 
I'm Avi Feingold. I'm Ilana Zakon. And I'm David Sklar. The Limu Toronto Festival takes place on Sunday, November 21st. Limu features educators, performers, authors, activists, and innovators from around the world. The Limu Festival of Jewish Learning celebrates creativity, diversity, inclusivity, and discussion. Everyone is welcome. All tickets to Limu are pay what you can. Learn more at limu.ca.